Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I am joined by the wonderful Katie Spada. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Oh, thank you so much, Hazel. I am honored to be here. I am so excited to sit down and talk about all things athletics and nutrition and fueling your body, embracing your body. So if anyone doesn't follow you on social media and maybe doesn't know your background, could you please give a brief introduction? Yeah, sure. So um, my career is as a registered dietitian nutritionist. That is my credentials and my educational background. Um, But my sports background is actually as an artistic swimmer, previously known as synchronized swimming. I was a competitive synchronized swimmer for 11 years, fortunate enough to compete at the national team and college level, and really found myself struggling with body and food all the way through my athletic career into retirement. Um, and so when I became a dietitian and I figured out, I thought, oh, I'm going to figure out how to stay skinny for the rest of my life. And we can talk more about that. Um, it actually opened my eyes to how problematic the sports culture is around nutrition and body. Mm -hmm. And now I really focus on helping athletes and former athletes transition their relationship with food and body, um, to be a healthy, sustainable one. That's so interesting that you say that your relationship towards food in your body wasn't good when you were an athlete. Um, Could you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So I was in a sport that was very aesthetically driven, right? It was all about how you looked. And if you Mm -hmm. didn't have the look, your skill kind of came second to that. Um, So I was constantly chasing this appearance that my sport was asking of me. And at the time, I didn't necessarily realize the things that I was engaging in and the behaviors I were doing, I was doing were negative and were disordered. Um, but things like obsessively tracking my food, working out outside of practice time and outside of training time, um, weighing myself multiple times a day to make sure I wasn't gaining weight or that, you know, my body was staying where it was supposed to be. There was this hyper fixation on needing to create this ideal body. Mm. And it really did result in some very unhealthy behaviors that transitioned. When I transitioned out of sport, they came with me. Mm. Um, But it wasn't until I was able to take a step back that I saw just how problematic they were. Were you taught about nutrition while you were an athlete and when you were competing? Like, were these behaviors encouraged? Yeah. So it's, it's funny because we did have access to, so I was on the U S national team for a couple of years and we had access to sports dietitians and same thing in college, which was fabulous. However, the culture of our sport was in direct conflict with what these sports dietitians were saying. Okay. And so I trying to be the best athlete I could be figured, Oh, well, like the dietitian doesn't know what they're talking about. They're not in my sport. Like I'll listen to what my sport culture is saying, what my coaches are saying, what my teammates Mm. are saying, and it became normalized. So I just thought I was doing what I needed to do to be the best athlete possible. 
I didn't realize that I was creating all of these potentially lifelong problems, mm-hmm. complications, health issues because of the decisions that I was making around food. I just thought, well, I'm going to be the best athlete possible. This is what I have to do. That's so interesting to me. Um, hearing about your experiences as an artistic swimmer, very different to my experience as a competitive swimmer, where obviously aesthetics are not as important. It's just as long as you're the fastest, who cares? Like if you get to the finish first, we don't care. Yep. But we also at, you know, um, away camps or anything had dietitians and nutritionists come in and talk. We had skinfold testing done. Yes. I still remember that. I was like 14. What business does anyone have doing skinfold testing on a 14-year-old? Nothing. Why? There's no... And I feel so lucky that back then I did not have a bad relationship to food. Like my issues started when I stopped swimming. But then I was like, if I'm fast, I don't care. I'm fast. I'm fit. I'm going to eat two bacon sandwiches for breakfast. Like I just did two hours in the pool. Who cares? Um, But now that I think back, obviously not everyone was in that same headspace as a 14 year old. And I think about the damage that that could potentially have done to an insecure 14 year old being skinfold tested at the side of the pool. Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up a really good point that we just don't know how these things are going to impact someone. Um, And after having worked with, oh gosh, well over 100 former athletes now, the one thing I can say is whether they, whether we're coming from a sport that was aesthetically focused or not, we often find ourselves in the same place after sport, which is dealing with these challenges of now my body's changing. Now, how do I eat? How do I exercise? And so even if like you said, like, well, when I was competing, like I didn't necessarily feel like I was struggling with those things. Like I was okay. Even in, even with people who have a healthy relationship with food as athletes, it oftentimes becomes really muddied when we retire. Oh, hundred percent. So yeah. yeah, because then you get all the diet culture, societal pressures, and all of a sudden, like your muscle mass drops because you're not training like six hours a day, right? And you're like, oh, my body looks different, but I still have the appetite of a competitive swimmer. So I'm hungry all the time if I don't eat. Um, yep. How did your relationship with food and your body develop after you finished sport? Yeah. So at first it got worse because I had the mindset of don't let yourself go. Right. Mm. And I'll put that in air quotes. Um, once you retire, like don't let yourself go. There was always locker talk when alumni came back or we saw former competitors and if their bodies changed, which they did, and they're supposed to, there was negative talk about that. Um, and you know, so that, that was something that I internalized and thought to myself, okay, well, you, you can't, you can't let that happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was on this mission to not air quotes, let myself go. So those behaviors that I had engaged in, they got worse because now I didn't feel like I had the safety net of practice and training to kind of erase whatever mistakes. And I'll, I'll again say air quotes there I would have with food. Mm-hmm. So now workouts became more focused, eating became more diligent and more restrictive. And that happened for, I'd say a couple of years post-sport before I figured out, hey, this path that you're on, it's not healthy and, and we need to make a change. Um, so it took me some time to really settle into recognizing my relationship with food was super disordered. My relationship with my body was really unhealthy and my relationship with exercise was compulsive and obsessive and it needed to change but it took me a while to get there. 
was there a trigger? Like, was there a moment that you remember where you thought, hey, no, this is this is not working for me. This is not good for me. I need to change something. Yeah, I remember I was actually in my dietetic internship and I found myself sitting on the floor. It was like 10 a.m. I had just tried on a bunch of clothes, hated all of them, was crying, had done like sit-ups on the ground just because I was so frustrated with my body. I need to do something. And I was like, this can't be the way I live life the rest of my life. Constantly at war with my body, constantly at war with my closet, with scale, with food. Like it just was not something I wanted for the rest of my life. And I won't say that, oh, it was like magic and everything changed from there. It was a long process to get to this place of healthy relationship with food, exercise, and body. Mm -hmm. But that was really the point that I was like, we need to take steps to figure out how we can make a change. Yeah. And how did you start to kind of heal your relationship with your food and your body? I started following accounts on Instagram that we're talking about intuitive eating and mm. this isn't something that we learn in school. Um, I know a lot of colleges are now including it in their curriculum, but when I went through my dietetic curriculum, it was not part of it. Um, so I started learning about it and I actually ordered the book and I started reading it and I got so frustrated that it felt like it was actually talking to me that I stopped reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Nope, I like, I can't do this. This is not this isn't, this isn't going to work for me. I feel like I hear this from several former athletes and I felt this way where it was like, okay, that might work for them, but like, I'm the exception that doesn't work for mm. me. Um, and so I tried to like figure it out on my own. And then eventually I went back to the book and I read the whole book and it radically changed my view as a practitioner, as, um, uh, as a former athlete and, I was able to then start to implement some of those changes slowly um, to get to the place where I am today. So it was definitely a process, but it was that moment in my bedroom and that book that really started it all. Could you maybe tell the listeners um, what book it was, if you remember, and maybe a little bit of info of what intuitive eating is? Yeah. So it's actually called like the book is called intuitive eating. And if you search for it on Google, Amazon, um, it's by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich. And they're two registered dietitians who created this framework of intuitive eating. And essentially what intuitive eating is, is it's meshing your body knowledge with your brain knowledge to create this really cohesive relationship with food. It takes, it takes weight out of the equation it takes numbers out of the equation. So it's less focused on losing weight or hitting a number on the scale. And it's more focused on recognizing cues that your body is giving you hunger, fullness, satiety, um, recognizing emotional eating and how to handle that in a way that's not disordered or negative, right? Um, how to approach food in this really sustainable, nourishing way instead of as the enemy. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, I found, instantly I found body positivity first. I followed all the Instagram accounts, loved that. I was like, yes, women celebrating their bodies. I love to see it. And yeah. then I found intuitive eating and that's where it kind of, the two started to kind of click together for me. And what's interesting for me is that it should just be natural. Like 
were born understanding those cues like and I think I read um the book I read was Just Eat It by Laura Thomas yeah um and I think there was a line in that book that said you know babies finish drinking milk when they're full like it doesn't matter if they finish the bottle or not or if they want more than one you know they know like they listen to their bodies and that's how much they eat and then society tells us that we shouldn't trust our body's cue so it was a bit of a process kind of getting back in touch with your body what was that like for you oh my gosh it was frustrating and I just to kind of like go off of what you said and then I'll expand on what it was like for me one of my favorite sayings is if we didn't have diet culture intuitive eating would just be called eating yeah I think that saying was really helpful for me in my kind of journey because I had to unpack and really retrain my brain how to approach food. For mm-hmm. so long, food had been something that I tried to avoid as much as possible, minimize as much as possible, only had good foods, bad foods I wasn't allowed to eat, and I really did categorize it. So I had to really start from ground zero, rebuild my relationship with food is food, how can I approach this in a neutral way? How can I make food choices that are nourishing but they're physically nourishing, soul nourishing. And it, it was uncomfortable because I had to be faced with a lot of these beliefs that I held and basically recognize that they were wrong. No one wants to be wrong. Um, but it was a very enlightening process for me to be able to reach the point of saying like, yeah, I can eat a cookie and a cookie's not bad. And I'll I'll say that sometimes and people are like, aren't you a dietitian? Like, yes, <laughs> it, that's exactly it. I am a dietitian and I want to share with you why a cookie is not bad. But for so long, it was ingrained in my head that these certain foods were not allowed. These certain foods were on the okay list that I really had to break it down before I was able to start to bring some of those foods back in and approach them all mm. neutrally. Yeah, I think there's so much value in finally understanding so much freedom in finally understanding that as well and you know the pitfall that I fell down and I I feel like a lot of people do as well is you have one cookie and you're like oh I messed everything up I might as well eat the whole pack right because you're like oh I've been quote-unquote bad um so now I might just be awful you know I'm gonna have a pizza as well and then you're like oh well I'll try again tomorrow and then you continue the pattern and continue the pattern um what what really helped you break that cycle was it letting go of the feelings of guilt was it a better understanding of your own body's cues it was it was a mix of both um I heard someone say and this stuck with me like well if you get a nail in one tire like that doesn't mean that you put nails in the other three tires right like when you kind of approach eating as oh I had one cookie like I ruined it I might as well just eat the rest it's kind of like you're going around slashing all of your tires for, for what reason? Mm. Um, so it was letting go of the guilt. It was also having this really good understanding of human physiology. I think for so long I had been under the impression that, Oh, if I eat sugar, if I eat carbs, if I eat high fat foods, it's going to have this like horrific impact on my body. Right. And that really fueled the guilt and the shame. Mm. Like I did this horrible thing to my body when I realized there is nothing wrong with eating a cookie. Like this is how the body actually uses it. 
it took away a lot of that guilt and shame and fear that was surrounding those foods. Mm. Um, so one of the things I love doing with my clients is sharing with them the actual physiological processes that happen in the body. I'll sit down and break it down with them and show them like, this is what your body is doing with this. This is what your body's doing with that. And it becomes less scary when you realize that your body is really, really good at using what you're putting into it. Yeah. Also letting you know what it needs. I think as athletes, we are, it's twofold. We're so good at understanding our bodies because we have this incredible body awareness that we had to have. Mm -hmm. And we were also taught to ignore a lot of the things our body was telling us, like push through the pain, push through that, keep going. So we have to kind of allow ourselves the opportunity to get back in touch with those subtle things that our body Mm -hmm. is telling us. Um, And that allows you to recognize like, oh yeah, like four, five, six cookies doesn't actually feel very good, but one or two, like I'm good with that. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, you know, it takes a lot of mental strength as well and to reject diet culture so profoundly as well, because you're so surrounded by it and so many diet culture practices are celebrated you know all of my friends have an apple watch all of my friends track their steps throughout the day you know I remember um and no offense to my friend Nadine if she is watching this and I think I said to her on the day we went a walk with the dogs and she was like oh it's a really good walk it's 10k and then we stopped after five minutes she was like oh no I forgot to start my watch I was like who cares we're going on a dog walk it's gonna be fun like you don't need to track these steps like you don't need to count these calories you know but that kind of mental attitude towards any exercise is so celebrated yes. and normalized. Yes. There is this praise that happens for these disordered behaviors. Like someone skips dessert. Oh my gosh, you're being so good. That's great yeah. willpower, right? Someone chooses to go to a workout instead of going out to happy hour. Like, wow, you're being so healthy. There's so much that really convolutes our view of what true health is Mm -hmm. that it's no doubt, like no, no surprise people are struggling with it. There are still times, and I share this with my clients, we are constantly engulfed with diet culture, that it's impossible for you to completely press away all of the diet culture thoughts. They will come up because we live in a society that is so thin focused and diet Mm -hmm. culture entrenched it's how we respond to those thoughts that really make or break our relationship with food. And if we find that food freedom. Yeah. And I think also to some extent, personality comes into it as well. Um, I feel like I'm a very, like I can be very self-confident and self-aware and speak up against like other people. So if other people are talking about calories in front of me, I'll be like, can we not talk about that? But for a lot of other people, they might really struggle with that. And I remember I went from being a competitive swimmer to wearing a wetsuit for work. You know, you can't hide anything in a wetsuit. You see everything. If you gain a pound, you lose a pound, you see it. Um, And in my industry, it was very normal to comment on people's weight. That was done all the time. And I remember when I found intuitive eating and I started eating intuitively, I lost a lot of weight. I stopped binging at night because I was listening to my body's cues, but I was still exercising a lot with my job. Yeah, And I got praised a lot for losing weight. And I said to every single person who praised me, I said, does that mean you're going to be disappointed in me when I gain the weight back? 
and their faces fell and I was like that's why you shouldn't comment because now if I put weight back on I'm gonna think you're disappointed in me so let's just say nothing yes oh my gosh I wish I could like bottle that up and just like give it to every person because agreed personality does make a big difference in the ability to say like that's unacceptable or like we're not Mm going to talk about that or please don't comment is individualized but the way that you pointed it out like hey you're praising this behavior well people think body weight is like a behavior right it's something that we're like in control of Mm -hmm. we have less control of our body weight than we actually think um but when especially as women Yes. Yes. Like asterisks, bold. Absolutely. There are so many things that influence our bodies. Um, you know, when people comment on it, when they praise weight loss, they're reinforcing that weight gain is something that they disapprove of, is something that makes you less worthy, less valuable. And I don't think they realize that when they're, they think they're saying something nice. Yeah. So I love the way that you brought that to their attention. And it's almost like when they praise it, it's almost like an incentive for you to stay that way. But when you actually understand the human body, again, especially as a woman, it's like my body's going to look different next week. If I'm on my period, my body's going to look different. Like six months from now, like if I change my birth control or, you know, I go on vacation or something, God God forbid something happens in the family and like your emotions come into play because we emotionally eat and that's totally fine. My mm-hmm. body's going to change again. So chances are I'm going to put the weight back on. And yep. yeah, like it's when you finally let go of like, I feel like the mentality so often is I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to get thin and I'm going to stay that way. It's yep. so unrealistic. It is. It is. Something that I love to say is, you know, when your body stops changing, that's when you stop existing because, right? Like, as long as you are still a living, breathing human, your body is going to change. And we want our bodies to change because that's a sign of life. So why are we so fearful of body changes? And, you know, I'll admit I'm currently pregnant and I'm experiencing a lot of body changes and there's a lot of emotions that come up with that. And I think it's okay to experience those emotions while also recognizing like body changes are human. They're normal. It's okay to experience them. And can we also touch on the hypocrisy and the unfairness that is the dad bod, that that can be so celebrated. And yet the woman who is actively growing the child and changing her body is not allowed to have a mum bod. Yes, there is so much. There is so much with that. And I actually, I just read a book called Feed Yourself and it's, Mm. it's a fabulous book by Leslie Schilling. She's a fellow dietitian. Um, And she talks about that, about the sexualization of the female body Mm -hmm. and how that really impacts a lot of the standards that we see and the pressures that like women are under that Mm -hmm. yes, men have pressures, but it's different. There's so much, like you said, a dad bod is is acceptable and people are like, yeah, dad bod, ha, cool. But if a mom has a postpartum body or has saggy skin on her stomach or whatever it is, it's like, she needs to take care of herself. Just let herself go. It's the same as like when you stop being an athlete. Like as soon as you're seen as not having the dedication to starve yourself, yep. suddenly you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. And I think that just circles back to the convoluted idea of what health is. And health is so tied to an image in our society. Mm-hmm. Like if you look a certain way, you're healthy. And that mm-hmm. couldn't be further from the truth. Um, You know, 
majority of people, you can't tell whether they're healthy or not based on looking at them. Mm-mm. So instead of praising this appearance, what if we looked at health promoting behaviors? That's something I love to talk about with my clients is like these health promoting behaviors. And that doesn't always mean exercising. That doesn't always mean vegetables. Sometimes it means skipping a workout to go connect and socialize with family and friends because that's actually really important for your health. Mm. So, Can you give some other examples of those um, health promoting behaviors? Yeah. Yeah. So another thing would be like getting adequate sleep, right? Skipping a workout in order to sleep in if your body's really tired. Mm. Um, Another could be, I love to talk about adding, like, can we add in variety? If someone has been cutting out carbs, adding carbs back in can be a health promoting behavior. Can we minimize screen time before we go to bed? Like that's something that I am so guilty of, um, but could be really important or resting. Resting is a behavior that people overlook, like in Mm. the sports world, it's rise and grind. You're working when your, you know, opponent is sleeping and it's like, no rest can actually be really beneficial and our bodies need rest. We're driving them into the ground and it can be so problematic. So it doesn't always have to be eating vegetables and working out. It could be taking a rest day. It could be going to happy hour. It could be saying yes to dessert and not feeling guilty about it. It really is individualized, but it's not just the eat less, work out more mentality that is so pushed in diet culture. Yeah, one of the things that, um, and I can't take credit for this idea at all, it was probably multiple social media posts that I saw, and it was encouraging women to explore the hobbies that they loved as children, because I feel like for men so often like how many of us have partners um or brothers or friends who have like a five aside football team or go to judo or karate or whatever on the weekends like they men I feel it's very much more accepted for them to be like oh yeah they have a club like they have an activity whereas women we kind of fall away from that in our teenage years like we kind of like after college we're kind of like okay like we're working and maybe we'll go to the gym but when you have an active sport, like whether it's horse riding or rock climbing or kayaking or whatever it is, you know, you don't need to count the calories. You're still getting exercise, but you're going to get a massive serotonin hit because you're having fun. Yes. Yes. I love to ask the question, if this activity would not burn a single calorie or change the way your body looks, would you still want to do it? And if the answer is no, then the reasons that we're engaging in that behavior is probably not from a really, from a health promoting place. And Um, it points out how much of our behavior has become disordered because of how we're viewing, like if your motive behind doing a certain thing is so that you will burn calories or lose weight, like, is that really why you should be doing it? Exactly. Exactly. I agree. I think, I think why we engage in behaviors is more important than the actual behavior that we're engaging in. Mm -hmm. You can still work out, but why are you working out? You can still choose to eat a salad, but why are you choosing the salad? Mm. I think, you know, that also crosses the line of where people will say, oh, like you're, of course you're a dietitian, you're choosing to eat a salad. And it's like, well, no, I'm choosing to eat a salad because it sounds refreshing and enjoyable. And it's, you know, summertime here. And I want something like cool those reasons have nothing to do with trying to cut calories, lose weight. So why you're making a decision, in my opinion, is more important than the actual decision. See, on my end, I hate salad. I (laughs) 
hate salads like you will never find like I will eat soup when it's 40 degrees out like celsius like I will when it's <laughs> like 100 degrees fahrenheit I'm eating a bowl of soup because I cannot stand salads so yeah listening to your body's cues also means knowing when you don't like something just eat something else yes and you don't have to eat something that you don't like yeah I, I think that's one of the biggest things that clients are always surprised by when they're like well I know I should be eating insert food and I'm like but do you like it well no okay you don't have to eat it and they're like what yeah there are you know we are fortunate to live in a time where there's a ton of different varieties of foods mm -hmm. you can nourish your body without having to suffer through something that you don't like and I think also we should make a quick caveat about privilege. You know, not everyone is privileged enough to have the choice. Not everyone is privileged enough to go out and buy fresh fruit and fresh vegetables, you know, every few days before they inevitably go off. You know, yes. if you're in the position where all you can afford is to have some fish fingers and to have a banana, like, congratulations, you're feeding your family. You're keeping your body fed. Like, if that's the best you can do, well done. Yes, I completely agree. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I do think there's this level of um, elitism and privilege when it comes to what health is. Mm -hmm. Oh, it has to be fresh. It has to be organic. No, it doesn't. Canned food, fabulous. Frozen food, fabulous. Processed food that's in the freezer, also fabulous. Whatever it is that you have access to, if you can give your body enough nutrition, that's the goal. Enough yeah. nutrition in whatever whatever facet that looks like. Um, so I do think that's a really important piece to point out because not everyone is going to be able to afford fresh, organic, non-GMO, which is a total, thing. <laughs> that's a whole other yeah. conversation, that's a whole other combo, <laughs> but you know, there's just, there's so many pieces to it. And I think there's a lot of shame that people yeah. feel around food mm -hmm. choices. Well, I can only afford to buy frozen fruits. Amazing. I love that you're able to get like frozen fruits into your, into your diet diet in the sense of the foods that you eat, not the act of engaging mm -hmm. in dieting. But um, yeah, it's a really important piece to point out. Yeah. And you are, um, your wheelhouse, shall we say, is working with former athletes. You know, that's where your experience comes from. That's what you really enjoy. Have you noticed that there are significant behavioral differences in the approach to food, specifically with athletes? With like athletes compared to former athletes or? No, athlete, former athletes compared to the general public, someone who hasn't done oh. sport professionally. Yes, absolutely. There are so many more kind of preconceived notions around food in the mm. former athlete community than in the general community. Um, I talked about this on my story the other day, like the food is fuel mentality. Well, food is fuel for, for what? A lot of times athletes are approaching food in this very robotic manner of like, if I work out, I earn this, I need to have carbs for my, for my pre-workout and, you know, protein post. Right. And it becomes very robotic and it takes the enjoyability out of food. Mm. Um, and I see that a lot in the former athlete community. I also see a lot more fear around foods in the former athlete community because of, well, I need to put good gas in the tank, right? Good fuel right. in my body. And so there's a lot of fear. These things I do see in the general population as well, but it seems to be heightened in the former athlete community. And, you know, research has shown time and time again that athletes and former athletes are at higher risk for developing eating disorders and disordered eating compared to the general population. So I just think it's really important to recognize that our mindsets around food 
are already impacted purely because of our sport culture. Yeah. If anyone is listening to this and um, is interested in becoming a client of yours or wants to read a little bit more about what you're about or what you offer, um, where could they find you? Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram um, at fueling.former.athletes. But you can also find my website, spotastrongnutrition.com. I have uh, an online course that was designed specifically for former athletes to help them really transition their nutrition and heal their relationship with their body and exercise post-sport. Um, that is everything I wish I had known in the first two to three years upon retiring. So that way I didn't have to struggle for so long. Um, so yeah, those would be the two places to find me. Always feel free to send me a DM, an email, say hello. I love connecting with the former athlete community. Yeah, absolutely. I see so much value in what you're offering. And I can say as a former athlete myself, I wish I had had someone to tell me all this stuff and I wouldn't have had to have wasted 10 years of my life struggling. Um, But Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing all of your wisdom. It's been amazing to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will catch you all next week.